Welcome back to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. My name is Kathy Kuhn, and I'm the Counseling Director at Rolling Hills. This week, we'll continue our series, Masterclass, focusing on the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has called us all to faith in Him, the Son of God who fed 5,000, which is five loaves of bread and two fish. We know our God can do incredible, miraculous things, yet the challenges of life sometimes feel insurmountable. So let's explore this week how we can follow Jesus' invitation to faith in Him, even in the most daunting of situations. Good morning. Hey, thank you for being here. Happy holiday weekend. It's good to see all of you. Um, As we start, I want to kind of pause for just a moment um, and acknowledge the fact that this week, you know, on the on the cusp of what we know is a great holiday weekend where we honor men and women who have sacrificed so much in order to protect freedoms, we realize that we still haven't figured out a way to provide absolute protection for the most vulnerable people in our world. Um, and so as we've turned on news and we've looked at reports and we've seen um, another senseless tragedy, we're going to pause this morning as a church um, and as a community of faith um, to pray. And obviously as we do, we're praying for families. We're praying for um, victims. We're praying for people that are traumatized. Now, like if you're, if you're Sandy Hook or Columbine and you're a parent that's still wrestling with this, you turn on the news this week and all of your trauma revisited you because of what you've experienced and you now know what all of these other families are experiencing. If you're George Floyd's mom, if you're somebody else who out there has experienced the, the violence of racism in our country, you, you see Buffalo and all of a sudden you're traumatized by the things that have happened. And so we are certainly as a people committed to pray for those who have lost. But we're also gonna pray that we would be a people, um, followers of Jesus Christ, um, that would be united in in a heart and an action to understand um, that it is, that we don't celebrate our freedoms at the expense of the most vulnerable and marginalized people in our country. Um, and that demanding rights is not the way of Jesus, but sacrificing ourselves is. Um, and so whatever that means for us today, we're gonna unite in prayer just knowing that there is um, a God who provides um, and a God who loves and a God who heals And until he comes up with another plan, you and I are the ones that are supposed to usher that in and represent it to the world um, so that they experience moments like this and in spite of it, know that we have hope. So Father, we thank you for a day like today when we are privileged um, and that word is not lost on us, God, because it is a privilege to gather. And in so many ways, we recognize, God, that we are a people who, who often want to leverage our privilege for our own good. And and so, God, what we say today is that we want to be a people who who leverage it for the good of others to get to know your son, Jesus. 
Let this gospel community be a people who pause and who grieve and who, who mourn and who wail over such unspeakable tragedies. But let us also be a people who are moved to be like Christ and willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to end these kinds of tragedies and to provide hope for people in spite of these kinds of tragedies and to leverage nothing else except for the opportunity that we're afforded to, to point people to Jesus by these kinds of tragedies. And God, we know that that only happens when we look like him and that we can't look like your son if we're too busy looking like ourselves. And so, Father, help us to be the called-out image bearers of your Son who are mobilized by our faith to be a people who provide light in a world that's real dark sometimes. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray today. Amen. It's just not lost on me that this week um, all three of my kids were at home in bed. Um, and so thinking about that, it's, it's a joy and a privilege, and it's an honor to get to be in this space, opening up God's work. We're, con we're continuing in uh, the book of Mark this entire summer on this idea of master class and what it means to study each one of these chapters and, and understand better the people that we're called to be in light of who Jesus is and, and what he's done. And here's the deal. Sometimes the people that have known you the longest don't recognize the newness of who you are. It happens all the time because, you know, your grandmother still calls you Nicholas. Well, none of y'all call me Nicholas. I wouldn't respond to that, but she does. Right, because she's known me since I was a uh, you know, you know, Nicholas, and that's she's the only one who does it. And I have a 15-year-old now who's driving a car. Um, she's got her permit, and she's had it for about six months. She got six months more to go for this license. And what I say to her all the time is, "Hey, you're gonna log like." more than a thousand hours behind the wheel of our car this calendar year because when I release you to be able to do it all by yourself, I'm going to make sure that you're the absolute most prepared that you can possibly be. And yet when I look over at her behind the wheel, I still think she's a toddler because she's mine. And you've got people like that in your life. You know, maybe your mom still thinks that you're a five-year-old picky eater, or maybe your grandmother can't believe that you're a professional out there in the world and that people actually call you sir or ma'am, or maybe it's your college buddies that can't believe that you're, like, literally all grown up because all they remember is, well, we won't talk about those days. Sometimes the people that, like, knew you way back then have a hard time believing who you are now. And that's what's kind of going on in the life of Jesus. If, as we turn to Mark chapter 6, open your Bibles there. If you've got analog or digital and you're going to follow along, we're going to begin in Mark chapter 6. There are 56 verses in this chapter of the Bible. And we're going to try to go through nearly all of them and cover every single point of it because there's something powerful in the narrative that we can experience together. And I'm going to say on the outset, it is possible. It's possible. I feel like lightning might strike. It's possible to be overly familiar with and yet underwhelmed with Jesus. And I think that's what happened, because in Mark chapter 6, verse 1, it says Jesus left there and went to his, to his hometown. 
people that knew him since he was a little boy. He was accompanied by his disciples. And it says, when the Sabbath came in verse 2, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. And this is not the same kind of amaze that the people experienced when they saw that the man who was inhabited by all of the evil spirits, legion, for we are many. And then he goes back and he's like clean shaven and wearing nice clothes. And he's like, what? That's the guy that was possessed. And the people were completely amazed at the miracle. This is not that kind of, ooh, ah, I want to see more of this amazed. This is the panic, shocked in a bad way, please stop, kind of amazed moment. The people are literally asking these questions in verse 2. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles that he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Like, aren't his sisters here with us? Like, they just couldn't believe that this was the same God that they grew up with, and they took offense at him. It's it's possible to be overly familiar with and yet really underwhelmed by Jesus. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town among his relatives and in his home. And it says he could not do any miracles there, like the miracles where he literally looks at the woman and says, daughter, your faith has healed you, because these people didn't have that kind of faith. He didn't do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Well, that's not chopped liver. Those are amazing things. He literally touched people and they were healed. And it says in scripture, he was amazed at their lack of faith. I'm going to pause right there for a second and try something new this morning. Um, Susan, my wife, will often, when we have people over to dinner, um, cook a recipe that we've never had before. And I'm like, well, that's so bold. Like, we've never even tried this. You're going to do that when company comes? Like, shouldn't we have a a trial run first? Well, we did have a trial run with this. It was called the 9 o'clock service. And so you guys should get a better perspective of that. But I'm going to point out some things that are specific to to Mark chapter 6 this morning. First off, that word, amazed. Well, here we go. Did it work? Oh, hallelujah. Pause. It did. Okay, great. It's like, I'm going to look at that word, and it's literally the idea of being in awe. And we've seen this happen before. Like, we've seen people in awe and amazement and wonder. That's what some of your Bible translations say. Over what? Over the signs? Oh, it's still working. And the miracles. This right here is a miracle in and of itself. Over the signs and the miracles that Jesus was accomplishing. And they were literally blown away by him. And they kept telling the story of like, did you know him? Like he healed that woman. Did you know him? He cast out that demon. Did you know him? He made that kid walk. Like this is, he rose, he he got that dead girl back to life. That's Mark chapter five. You should go back and read it. Like literally the amazing things that, that he was doing. And here's what we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus. It was often that people were amazed by him, but that's, that's not this verse. Instead, instead of people being amazed by Jesus, it's him being amazed by them and their lack of faith, which is literally the Greek word for unbelief. You see, there's, there's a lot of moments in, in this biblical narrative where, where the people b- b- believe in Jesus because of the signs and the wonders. And here's this moment where they don't believe in him despite the many signs and wonders. It's because they were too familiar. It's because they had not willingly accepted that this Jesus that they knew from way back was more. More than who they thought he was. More than who they had experienced him to be. Our faith in God does not come merely by a connection 
This can't be like your grandma's faith or your mom's faith or your I came to VBS when I was a little kid and raised my hand and repeated some words kind of faith. Faith is a declaration of your whole life lived in belief of who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's capable of in your life. And it has to be evidenced by the things that you say and the absolute way that you live and the sacrifices that that you're willing to make. Faith doesn't just come because you were connected to a church or a denomination or because you live next door to a pastor or because your grandma watched TBN. Like that's literally not where faith comes from. It comes from your declaration in who Jesus is. And that declaration is not in just some words that you said one time when you were little. It's a declaration in the way that you live your whole life. You cannot just be gospel adjacent. That's like a Christmas and Easter Christian. Like you cannot just be adjacent to the gospel. Oh, I attend sometimes or, oh, I signed a covenant and I'm, what is that even all about? This, this can't be occasional for you. It can't be opportunistic for you. It can't be a thing that you do when it's convenient. Like it has to literally describe and be evidenced by everything that you are. The real wonder in this passage, the real amazement in this passage and in every passage comes from complete and total consumption. And that's not you being a consumer and listening to a whole lot of Christian songs and buying a whole lot of Christian books and doing a whole lot of Christian devotionals and attending a whole lot of Christian services and downloading a whole lot of Christian podcasts. It's not about you being the consumer at all. It's about us being consumed. One of my favorite Old Testament stories comes from Judges. This fellow named Gideon. In a time in Israel's history when they were really evil and they had abandoned the practices and the ways of God, it says that Midian came and overtook them and they were being oppressed. And if you look that word up in the Hebrew language, it literally means to make them small. And there's some moments in our lives when we felt small. And Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press, which I don't know anything about threshing wheat and I don't know anything about a wine press, but I think that's difficult. So it's not where you're supposed to do it. So he's threshing wheat in a wine press so that he will not be found out by the Midianites. And he's visited by an angel of the Lord. Okay, so the angel of the Lord comes and speaks to him. He's like, hey, go in the strength you have because you're going to deliver my people. And Gideon's like, I'm real small. My tribe is real small. We're pretty weak. I think we'll just stay over here in the wine press. And literally the conversation continues. And finally Gideon gets up enough courage to ask a question. Pardon me, my Lord. Like, 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 if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And I'll pause for just a second. That's the number one question I get as a pastor and a teacher of what this word says. Like, if God is real and if God is love, why do bad things happen to good people? And then I like cut them off because like, yeah, there's no good people. And I was like, what you mean? Why do bad things happen at all? Like, if God is good, why do bad things happen? Somebody, you've asked that question or you've been asked that question. You didn't quite know how to answer that question for the life of your kid or the life of your neighbor who's going through unspeakable tragedy. Well, Gideon asks that question like, if God is for us, why does all this bad stuff happen to us? And then he says this, where are all the wonders? Where are the miracles at? Like, where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, didn't the Lord bring us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and given us over into the hands of me? Like, where's the wonder? Like, where are the miracles? And it wasn't in that moment that God parted another sea. It wasn't in that moment that God raised another dead to life. It was in that moment that Gideon goes and gets an offering. He brings back some meat and some bread. And like, I don't, he's like, hey, can you hold on and stay here for just a second? I'm going to go kill an animal and cook a meal. Like, that just takes a while. Okay, they didn't have Chick-fil-A. So literally he goes and he prepares and he brings it back and he, he sets it on the rock. And in Judges 6, 21, it says, the angel of the Lord touched the, sound like real Southern, touched. He touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand and fire flared up from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread and the angel of the Lord dis. Uh, 
here, you want to know where the wonder is? It's in the consumption. It's in the consumption of God's people just being so eat up with who Jesus is that we can barely talk about, think about, sing about, do anything else but love him and tell other people about him because it's not us consuming all the good things of God and the life of the church and in this world that we are privileged to get to live in. It's literally God being consumed by our lives, soaking us up like an offering on a rock. Everything, that's the miracle. The wonders in the consumption of God's people. So who's more amazed with who? Like, is it you with Jesus? Or, or Jesus with you? Like, who is more amazed? Are, are you more amazed with who he is and what he's done and what this word means? Or is he more amazed at just how much you have been given an experience, but how very little you pay attention. Like one day we're going to send our team driver out into the world, um, and I'm going to be like 50% so excited because we just need an extra driver in the house to take her brother to a baseball practice and to get some groceries. Like, oh, won't that be amazing? But then also 50% terrified and watching every little second that she makes on my iPhone to see that she gets to a place and that she doesn't linger in one spot too long because I'm like, Lord Jesus, please bring her home safely. Like right now, she's just driving with us and I get to watch every move she makes and I get to scream and puff my imaginary brakes if she does something that's wrong. But eventually she's going to do it without us. And that's what transpires in the next part of this passage in Mark, the end of chapter six. It says, then Jesus went around teaching from village to village and calling the 12 to him, these disciples that have been traveling with him and seeing all these things thus far he began sending them out two by two and gave them authority like one day the state of Tennessee is going to like if you pass your test he's they're going to give Lily Kate the authority to drive a car all by herself he's sending them out with authority that they get to do this on their own they're going to be the ones driving out impure spirits and these were his instructions take nothing for the journey except a staff no bread no bag no money in your belts wear sandals but not an extra shirt whenever you enter a house stay there until you leave that town and if any place will not welcome you or listen to you leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony these are like detailed instructions like super I said at the first service to my 16 15 year old daughter who was sitting here you better believe that when I send you out on your own there are going to be some really detailed instructions and you have to follow every single one of them he's sending them out with authority with privilege with opportunity and he gives them detailed instructions and it says they went out and they preached that people should repent and they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Like it worked. Like the investment that Jesus had made in them, like it, like it worked. And they were able to do all of these things. And if you go to the Gospel of John, he writes down that Jesus said these words, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. Jesus kicked out demons. They kicked out demons. Jesus healed the sick. They healed the sick. But he goes on to say, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the water. Hold on, Jesus. Like, I'm okay if you tell me that we, like us as disciples, like we're going to go out and do some of the same stuff you do. But to say that we're going to do greater stuff than you, that's where I draw the line. And I'm like, what in the world? Like, how are we going to do anything bigger and better than you? Well, this word also means longer and farther. Jesus' ministry lasted three years max. Barely that. Well, the church has withstood the attacks of the enemy and the forces in this world for over 2,000 years longer. 
Uh, you, you talk about greater in, in the idea of the church. Jesus literally never traveled more than 100 miles from the town he was born. And we have seen through the authority given to them and us by the power of God, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, we have seen the gospel literally go to the ends of the earth, greater and longer. Why? Because he went to the Father. And so rumors continued to travel, not only just about Jesus, but now about the disciples who were doing things in his name. And it says in verse 14, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. We see that in the crowds that are flocking around him everywhere he goes. Well, his name had become well known, and now Herod knows about it. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah, and others still claimed he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, like when it made it all the way back to King Herod, not King Herod that tried to kill baby Jesus when the wise men came, but like the next King Herod, King Herod Antipas. Um, it says, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Which one of all the rumors that were circulating about Jesus did Herod believe? It was that John had come back to life. And this cool passage of scripture, because there's this moment in Jesus' ministry, it's recorded for us in the book of Matthew, chapter 16. He's walking around the region of Caesarea Philippi with his disciples, and he's like, hey, who do people say I am? Like, what are the rumors? Just kind of give me some feedback from the community. What are people making assumptions about me? And the disciples respond to him, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, and some say you're one of the prophets. All of those rumors the ones that the disciples had heard, the ones that Jesus was now hearing, had made it back to Herod. And Herod's assumption was that, oh yeah, this has to be John the Baptist. Well, Jesus asked the disciples in that moment in Matthew, but who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, he's like, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Well, Herod and the rest of the community weren't quite there yet. And Herod was afraid in that moment because although he liked John the Baptist and he was afraid to kill John the Baptist because the people liked John the Baptist, he wanted to listen to what he said, but he wanted to stay kind of far away from him. John the Baptist didn't want Herod to marry his brother's wife, Herodias, and Herod did anyway. And that made Herodias really mad, like super grudgy mad, like she was really mad at John the Baptist. And if you continue reading this passage of scripture through verse 29, you'll find Herod throwing this giant party and he's invited all the military leaders to come to it. And he's got Herodias' daughter, his niece, and she comes in and she's, she's literally dancing for the crowd. And this is not like, it's not Macarena. It's not like they're doing the chicken dance. It's not like flossing. Like, no, it's not. It's like, it's like, Naked PG-13 rated R kind of dance, and that's what's happening in this moment. And the Bible says that people were so pleased with her, and Herod was so proud in that moment, which is such a weird thing to do. Okay, like, he's so proud. He literally says to her, hey, I'll give you anything that you want. And so she goes back and asks her mom, hey, I get any prize I want from the prize bin. What should I choose? And she's like, bring me the head of John the Baptist. And I only said that with a British accent, not because I believe the British people are evil, but because I watched a movie one time, and that's what she did. Like, she was the British, bring me the head of John the Baptist. And so she comes back, and Herod didn't want to do it, but he ordered it anyway. So the executioner goes to where John had been arrested. He cuts off John the Baptist's head and presents it in front of all the crowd on the platter. So John's dead. He's recalling this story of like, wait a minute. Jesus is, he's like, he's like John the Baptist, come back to life. But, 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 but I took care of that, right? And the disciples have come back fresh from the most amazing moment in their ministry journey. They've done, they've done all these miracles. And so verse 30, it says, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. And I see in this moment, just me, I see in this moment, hey, trying to cheer up Jesus. We know your cousin's dead. We know that you're still grieving. We know that you're still mourning. Scripture tells us that he was sad. Like, Scripture gives us this, this information about the way that 
that John described Jesus and Jesus described to John. You see, John's whole role was to prep the path and set the pace for the disciples of Jesus. Like, like it's hard to emulate who Christ is. We should start by emulating who John was. It says about him in Luke chapter 1, and you, my child, is, his father's literally prophesying at the time of the birth of John the Baptist, just a few months before Jesus himself would be born in, in the book of Luke, you will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. And that's supposed to be part of our ministry. We're supposed to be preparing the way for people to see Jesus because he's, he's here How did John describe Jesus when he comes to be baptized? He says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And then he says about himself, like, he must increase. His popularity has to rise. His power has to, like, and I must decrease. And that's supposed to be our posture too. Like, we're supposed to prepare a way for people to see Jesus. And then we're supposed to let his reputation increase and and our reputation in this world decrease so that people see far more of Jesus than they ever see of us. That's how John described him. How did Jesus describe John? He said in Matthew 11, truly, I tell you, among those born of women, all of us, by the way, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So you know what the grief was like when he was lost, and when he was gone, particularly in the manner that he died. And so in Mark's version of the story, the, the disciples, they, they gather around Jesus and they're telling him all the great things that they were able to do. They're like, hey, cheer up. I know you're sad, but we cast out some demons. Hey, cheer up, Jesus. I know that this is a hard season of your ministry, but we were able to heal some people. And then it says in verse 31, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. Never my story. Okay, whatever. Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many... Many saw them leaving, recognized them, and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. You see, if you read the narrative in Matthew, he goes straight from the moment where John the Baptist is being killed to Jesus trying to get to a remote place and the crowds swarming around him. In all the moments where where this story is mentioned, it says that Jesus had compassion on the crowds here in Mark. It says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. This idea of being moved to compassion is a fun Greek word to say. It's spangnizomai, and it literally means to be moved in the bowels. Like you got to rumble in your jungle here. Like it's just, you're feeling it. And that's because they literally believed that the bowels were thought to be, that that was the seat of love and affection. So they weren't like cutting out little hearts and sending it on Valentine's Day. They were cutting out stomachs and sending it. Like that's the, hey, I love you that much. Like that's where love, that's where compassion, that's where this affection came from. Scripture says he, he was moved in his bowels, not just because he had experienced this tragic loss, but he was moved because he saw the people and realized just how needy they are. Here's a sidebar. What if, what if grief for us doesn't sideline our compassion because so many times we just get stuck over here and whatever is grieving us in this life and it happens and I understand it but what if what if grief doesn't sideline our compassion but furthers it and gives us more opportunity to want to go and love and show affection towards others there's a definition of compassion for us in the life of the church and it's basically this Compassion means that there will never be joy for me until there is also joy for you. 
And we ought to look at the rest of the world and grieve when they don't have Christ. Grieve when they don't have joy and grieve when they don't have this truth. And then we ought to feel it in our guts and be moved as a people to do something about it. The story continues to a really familiar one. By this time, it says in Mark 6, 35, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages, and we'd have to go back and cook the meat and bread, and we don't have any recipe for, like, what's going on? Like, what? How, we would spend half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? He says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the grass. And so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And he also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. I read that as like, like full, like you had Thanksgiving dinner and now you're going to go take a nap kind of full, like where you feel it. Like they were full. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5 thousand and if you want to talk about a repeating pattern in scripture that matters to us how long had the woman in Matthew chapter Mark chapter 5 been bleeding 12 years how old was the little girl that Jesus brought back from the dead 12 years old how many disciples and tribes of Israel were 12 and here's 12 baskets full of leftovers if there's something that's repeated in scripture it's repeated for a reason it's for us to be inspired to faith it says immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. Like, we just fed all these people, now we're getting back into the boat to go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land, and he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. Mark is the only one. Like, we get this story in the book of Matthew. We get this story in the book of John 2. And Mark is the only one that gives us the detail that he's just about to pass. I'm like, here's y'all struggling with your oars, and I'm just going to pass you by and make it to the other. Like, I love the idea that Jesus is racing. It's like crew, like rowing. And here he's going to make it faster than they are. Matthew, incidentally, is the only one that gives us the story about Peter going, hey, if it's really you, let me walk out there. And then Peter, of course, walks on water, which I think is a really big deal. And I would want to share, but then he sinks. And so he probably doesn't want that detail passed down. So Mark doesn't record it for us. And it says, when they saw him walking on the lake in verse 49, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and they were terrified. And immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it's I. Don't be afraid. So then he climbed into the boat with them. I like the word with in the Bible. And the wind died down. And they were completely amazed. Not like awe kind of amazed, but freaked out kind of amazed because Scripture says here that they had not understood about the loaves and their hearts were hardened. It's, it's possible to be overly familiar and yet underwhelmed by Jesus. and To misunderstand what he does and what he's capable of. It says that when they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and they anchored there. And as soon as they got out of the boat, the people recognized Jesus. Here he is and they 
people, they ran throughout that whole region and they carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countrysides, they placed the sick in the marketplaces and they begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, like the woman in the crowded streets that she reached out and touched the edge. Power left Jesus. She was immediately healed. Word had spread, hey, if you just touch the edge of his cloak, you will be healed. And that's what happened. It says, and all who touched it were healed. I want to tell you something about your experiences today. You got a lot of them. The older you are, the more experiences you have. But experiences only matter when they shape who we become and when they shape what we believe. It's, it's like the idea of learning your lesson. Like, like if you have a failure and you don't learn from it, then, then it's wasted. The people from Jesus' village of Nazareth had 30 plus years with the Messiah living among them and playing in their streets and hanging out with their kids and doing woodwork and carpentry with his father. 30 years, and now they had recent miracles and him in their own synagogue teaching about the kingdom of God. And it did, they had all these experiences and it did not shape their belief. The disciples called to follow Jesus had literally been with him from town to town. They saw the dead girl come back to life. They saw the bleeding woman be healed. They saw the legion of demons leave that guy, jump in some pigs, drown in the water, and that guy be completely normal and healed and restored again. They saw the cripple on the mat be lowered down and all of a sudden get up and walk because his sins were forgiven. They had had experience after experience after experience with Jesus, and they were the first-hand witnesses to his power. They saw saw the people eat their lunch with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Thousands of people ate. They saw him walking on water in the early hours of the morning when it was still dark outside, and he calmed the storm in front of them. But that did not shape what they thought in this moment. The Bible says that they did not understand. Maybe we'll try this again. They didn't understand. And what that means is, some of your Bible translations say, the idea of gaining insight. They didn't gain any insight from that event. Nothing about their belief changed that day when they witnessed Jesus feed those people. And that idea of understanding, it is literally the picture of joining two things together. Joined. Joined together in understanding. Why didn't it happen for them? Why didn't that make a difference? Why didn't that shape who they were? Why didn't the whole incident with the loaves literally affect what they thought about Jesus and propel them into to new evidence of faith? It's because their hearts were hardened. And that word hardened is literally the idea of being covered with thick skin. It's the word calloused. which somebody asked me after the first service if I misspelled the word callous. Look it up. This is really it, okay? It's the idea of being calloused. And when you shake somebody's hands who works with them, who's like a, a carpenter or, or a woodworker or somebody who's a, a laborer, you can feel the calluses, right? You know, like as soon as you do, you're like, oh, this is a hardworking dude because the calluses are thick and they cover it. 
Well, that's what had happened unto the disciples. They'd become numb to all the things that Jesus could do. Their their hearts were hardened and calloused, so much so that they couldn't take in another miracle from Jesus. They had just become numb to the idea of him being who he was. And in this moment, here's Jesus wanting to show them more, give them more. Had they just seen so much, been out on their miraculous journeys, and now they're so impressed with themselves and what they were able to do. We can cast out demons too. We can heal people too. Were they so preoccupied? with themselves that they meant the nuance that what Jesus was doing in this moment for more people, for more reasons, did they somehow become calloused? Let's not just be people who welcome the wonder, who get excited when it looks like Jesus did something new, who get excited when he answers a prayer. Let's, let's not just welcome the wonder. We talked about that, the, the word amaze, just, just in awe and wonder of who Jesus is, let's be moved towards him to be like him. Faith means more. We saw it in Matthew chapter 5. Oh, the people were amazed. They were, whoa, that was, that's, that's neat that you did that, Jesus. We, we see it in this moment. Oh, yeah, the people are like, oh, wow. And then we see Jesus being amazed at them and their lack of belief. Somehow or another, the miracle didn't change them. It didn't author what they thought about him. Now we've seen the people be completely astonished. And what does that mean? It means to be thrown out of your position, to be displaced, to be literally beside yourself. Let's not just welcome the wonder and the momentary amazement at, oh, Jesus did another good thing. Let's be moved in a moment in our lives to be more like him. I want to be so amazed at the fullness of what Jesus does. I want to be so moved towards Christ and Christ's likeness and my thoughts and my actions, my beliefs and everything about me that I say and I do that, that it trumps how amazed he could be over my lack of faith, my lack of belief. I want my amazement at him to trump his amazement at me. That's how the gospel will spread when we're so stinking eat up by it that we can't help but live it out in such a way that when people look at us and when they look at this church and when they experience our actions and when they read our words and they view our post, I'm looking at you, Facebook, like when they literally see the things that we put out there into the universe, they see less of us and more of Christ. I've been doing a, a Bible study called The Gospel on the Ground by a lady named Christy McClellan, and she says this, No one living in first century AD would have imagined that a Jewish rabbi in some region far away from Rome would actually be more powerful than the Caesar of Rome. Like nobody in Nazareth would have amounted that Jesus would have amounted to much. Nobody in that region would have thought that some local fisherman could have done anything big. Like nobody would have ever guessed that some rabbi from some town would have been more powerful than the Caesar of Rome. No one would have ever thought that the kingdom Jesus was preaching about would still be around 2,000 years later while the Roman Empire no longer exists. We've outlasted it. No one would have ever expected that from a rabbi. Just like nobody would ever expect that from an eighth grader in Nashville or an old lady in Rolling Hills. Like, I'm not looking at anybody specific when I say that. (laughs) 
nobody would have expected us to do anything great for the kingdom of God and for the kingdom of God to still outlast the most powerful empire in the world. But it did. And it still does. Because God's doing more than what we think he can. And when our hearts are calloused, we don't see it. And so we want the God of this great universe to help our eyes see the things he does and experience the words that he brings and the truth that he has, the power that he brings. And we want to be changed by it. This, this isn't about old carpenter son Jesus. It's the son of God Jesus that changes the world. This is not about old childish you. This is about radical mind-blowing faith you that has literally gone out to change the world. It can happen. And we can be amazed by it. Or you can be numb to it and miss what Christ wants to do. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance to be in this place and to look at your word and to trust that everything that it says, every story that it portrays, every detail that it provides is all geared towards moving us towards being a people of increased faith. And so God, would you make us different? Would you make us more Christ-like? Would you make us mind-blowing to the world around us? Because they look at us and they don't expect much, but what they encounter in us is literally the very power of Almighty God at work through His Spirit in the lives of ordinary people whose faith is so great when people look at us, all they see is Christ. Would you do what only you can do, God? And would you allow us to be a people whose understanding and insight increases so much and it prompts in us a greater faith in you and the possibilities of a life that follows you? Would you call us to faith? Would you call us to discipleship? Would you call us to be your representatives in the world? And would you blow our minds with what you're capable of when we're willing? It's in the name of Jesus that we pray blessings on this day. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. If this content has blessed you in some way, we hope you will share it with a friend and subscribe so you never miss a new sermon. Be sure to check out our other great podcasts like the Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's As You Go Podcast. If you want to learn more about Rolling Hills, you can download our app, Follow us on social media or visit our website at rollinghills.church. Tune in next week for more of our series, Masterclass.